Hello, hello. Good to see you all again. So last night, Brian gave a very inspiring talk about opening to beauty, including the beauty of the seven factors of awakening. And maybe some of you can still taste a residue of those beautiful states. Others, perhaps, might seem like they're a distant memory. And maybe for some of you, there's more of a sense of just bouncing around all over the place, not really sure what's going on. Similar how Tatueri described in her talk the other night. And I loved how she normalized those phases of the practice. And in fact, all of us in different ways, we've been emphasizing that this practice unfolds according to its own natural rhythms and cycles. And you may have heard this process being described as phases of purity and purification. Did you hear any of that perhaps in part one? So it refers to the so-called purification stage, and I like to put it in in quotation marks. This purification stage is when we're navigating all of those various challenging emotions and moods and mind states that come up. And as we learn how to relate to those unpleasant formations skillfully, in other words, with kindness, with interest, with openness, with equanimity, eventually those states release and we find ourselves in the so-called purity stage. And this is when the mind becomes calm and clear and open and equanimous. And sometimes there's even a few moments of bliss. And what happens then? Very commonly we think, yep, now I've got it. This is great. Made it for the rest of the retreat. Cruise control. (laughs) So maybe some of you recognize that. So you probably know what happens next. The very next sitting, maybe a couple of hours later, maybe the next day, feels like everything falls apart. Another one of those multiple hindrance attacks comes in, seemingly with even more intensity than before. And so there we are again, back in the purification cycle. And we stay there until we develop enough skill to metabolize that. And then eventually it dissolves. Next purity cycle emerges. If we try to resist the unpleasant experiences in the purification phase or cling to the pleasant experiences in the purity phase, we'll suffer. We'll get taken for a wild ride. And so the antidote is just to make space and to recognize, okay, now it's like this. Now this. Now this. And as you've all been experiencing, eventually those pendulum swings get a little bit less dramatic. And we find ourselves more easily in times of ease and clarity and peace. And the more often these phases happen, the clearer it becomes that this is just the normal, natural unfolding of the practice. And again, as always, much easier said than done. So we're fortunate this is a training, it's a skill we can learn, we can practice. So this evening, my talk is in some ways a kind of a counterbalance to Brian's talk last night on the awakening factors. (laughs) 
because I'm going to be talking about some of the unskillful mental qualities that can also come up at this stage of the retreat. So I wondered about borrowing the title of Jack Cornfield's well-known book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. So in some ways, what we're doing now is doing the laundry, remembering how to practice with afflictive mind states, how to help them release, so that we can find our way back to ease and balance more quickly. So, afflictive states. Just to acknowledge, there is a lot of them. So I'm going to try and keep this talk more manageable and focus on just one, one specific state that often shows up on retreat as well as in daily life, and that's the state of anxiety. Now, although I'll be focusing mostly on anxiety, almost everything I have to say could also apply to any other unpleasant or afflictive state. States like anger or despair or lust or grief or shame, to name just a few. So in some ways, anxiety is just one particular representative of a kind of a whole family, a whole tribe of afflictive states. So, you know, for some of you, anxiety might not be that relevant. So you're welcome just to substitute whatever other afflictive or difficult states might happen to be more prevalent for you at the moment. And if none of them are coming up much, just appreciate, enjoy that. Make the most of being in one of those purity phases. So whether you're working with anxiety or any of the other afflictive states, the first stage is to develop the right attitude to it. And right there is the first challenge. Because these states are so unpleasant, our usual instinct is to avoid, ignore, repress, or even deny that they're there at all. And as I'm sure you know from your own experience, not only does that strategy not work, it usually just results in us being unconsciously driven by that state, creating more pain, more difficulty, more suffering, not only for ourselves, but for others too. Still, it's a very common reaction to anxiety or any other painful state. Get it away from me. A second, also very common reaction, and particularly I think for people on retreat, is to believe that they're supposed to dive headfirst into that difficult state dive into it, drill down into it, and stay there indefinitely because anything other than that is somehow cheating. But again, as you may have recognized from your own experience, that approach usually just sends up in us getting overwhelmed, even re-traumatized if it's very intense. So instead of those two opposite moves of either completely avoiding or drilling down into it, the middle way is what we're aiming for. The middle way is that balanced, steady approach that involves gradually, gradually opening to what's difficult. So we learn the skill of touching in to the painful state and then backing off so we can refine our center. We can re-establish some steadiness. And then we can open again and stay steady with the difficulty for just a little longer. Stay steady with whatever 
the afflictive state is. So in some ways this process is about titrating our exposure to the difficulty. So titrating being a medical term that involves finding just the right dose of a medicine, just enough so it strengthens our immune system without harming it. Pretty obviously, if the dose is too little, it's not going to have any effect. But if it's too much, it could be toxic. And in the same way, when we're working with those more entrenched or deep-seated painful patterns, we want to take our time to slowly metabolize them little by little. And this is one of the great benefits of being on a longer retreat like this. Over the days and the weeks and the months, we have the opportunity to patiently sense in, to listen to the capacity of our hearts and minds, and to explore these painful states in a way that's attuned to our capacity in any moment. So I call this practice touch and go. And the touch aspect involves just recognizing when an afflictive state is there, just acknowledging it, staying with it for just as long or as short as there is enough mindfulness that we don't fall into reactivity to it. So we touch it. And then the go aspect involves consciously redirecting our attention away, redirecting it towards something that's somewhat pleasant, soothing, relaxing, so that we can resource ourselves and stay in balance. And because this process is done mindfully and carefully and consciously and with wisdom, it's very different than just running away. So this is not cheating, as people sometimes think. It's actually a skillful way to navigate these more challenging mental states. Okay, so the first step is to develop a skillful relationship to the afflictive state. Because when we're not lost in reactivity to it, we have the opportunity to see it more clearly without being driven by it. And in a certain way, what we're trying to do is become experts in these states so we can understand better what causes them to arise, what makes them stick around longer than they need to, and what helps them to release. So coming back to anxiety as our representative of all of the afflictive states, let's look a bit more closely at the physical and the mental symptoms of anxiety and where it fits in the Buddha's list. It's definitely a hindrance. And although it's not specifically named as anxiety, I see it as belonging to the hindrance of restlessness and remorse. So this particular hindrance is sometimes translated also as restlessness and worry. I've also seen it translated as worry and flurry, which definitely has an anxious flavor to it, at least to me. So I'm guessing you probably are familiar with some of the symptoms of anxiety in terms of body. At least for me, often it comes with shallow breathing maybe tightness in the throat or tension in the chest or hollowness in the belly. 
clammy hands, agitation, restlessness, wanting to change position every few minutes. And if it's really intense, perhaps a feeling of wanting to jump out of our skin, maybe run screaming from the hall. In fact, I feel slightly anxious even just talking about all of that. (laughs) It's contagious. So those are the physical symptoms. The mental symptoms are in some ways similar. The mind also doesn't settle. It jumps from object to object, scattered, distracted. And if there's no mindfulness, it tends to propel out into papancha, the proliferative looping over and over and over in thoughts about the future, anxiety about what might happen next, what terrible experience could be coming at us later today, or tomorrow, or after the retreat ends. Even though actually right now, in this moment, everything is okay, the mind is going into the future. And this is one key clue that took me a really long time to recognize. (laughs) Whenever anxiety is present, there's usually a lot of future thinking, different forms of anticipation and expectation. And the quicker we can recognize this future thinking, the easier it is to reduce the anxiety. So if you remember the wheel model that I introduced last week, if we can come back to the center, the hub of the wheel, this is so helpful for restabilizing. As soon as that first trigger thought appears in the mind, oh no, here we go again, it's all downhill from here, This is going to be hell, two more weeks of misery. Name it, oh, future thinking. And come back, the body, the breath, just this step, just this sight, just this sound. Refinding that stability that's available closer to immediate experience. Again, sounds easy, but when mindfulness isn't strong enough, anxiety tends to take on a life of its own, and it spins out into catastrophizing. This is where the mind proliferates and creates all kinds of intense doomsday scenarios in a kind of a maladapted strategy to try and prevent or preempt those situations from happening. And when we pay attention to the inner language that tends to come up, we see how it enhances the anxiety. And I've seen this in my own mind, of course. But a few years ago, I also saw it very clearly when I was in a group meeting during a retreat. I was on a retreat in Melbourne. And in that situation, one of the women in the group was really struggling with difficult emotions. And in that struggle, she wasn't seeing how much she was amplifying her own distress. And she later gave me permission to share what happened because for her it was quite a turning point. So in the group practice meeting, she described how she'd been experiencing a lot of anxiety and fear. And she'd been finding it quite overwhelming. So as she was describing it, she was crying quite a lot. And I heard her say something like, Every time I sit down to meditate, the Italians just keep coming. Italians and Italians and Italians. And I was a little concerned because there's a big Italian population in Melbourne. (laughs) And I was slightly worried that maybe some people in the group were Italian and (laughs) would wonder 
what she was trying to say. And I was really puzzled. Why would you be so afraid of Italians? <laughs> so finally, I, I had to ask her. I said, why? What is it about Italians that's so disturbing? And she just looked at me in shock and said, not Italians, battalions. Battalions, the battalions keep coming. <laughs> and everyone in the room burst out laughing, including the woman who'd been crying. And later on, she told me that it had changed her whole relationship to that fear. She would start to feel anxiety coming up. And instead of telling herself that the battalions were coming again, <laughs> she'd think about Italians. <laughs> And her mind would go to delicious food and ancient buildings and beautiful landscapes and the musicality of the language. And the anxiety would just fade away. So how we think about our experience has a huge impact. And in a similar vein, some of you might know that famous quote that's attributed to Mark Twain. There have been a great many tragedies in my life most of which never actually happened. <laughs> so we can recognize, I think, how we do this to ourselves. But even if we understand it intellectually, it's not so easy just to tell ourselves to stop. So more recently in my own practice, I've been recognizing how this sort of future orientation or even obsession of anxiety is in some ways an attempt to make the unknowable known. We're trying to make the uncertain certain, the unpredictable predictable, or to paraphrase Brian, to make the unfamiliar familiar. And perversely, I think there's something about anxiety that many people would rather imagine a catastrophic situation than open to the truth, that we don't actually know yet what's going to unfold. There's something about uncertainty, about not knowing, that seems to be deeply challenging to this human biology. So in some ways, anxiety is a misplaced strategy for trying to maintain control, to try to get safety and certainty and security in a world that actually can't deliver it, in a world that's in flux. So in some ways, anxiety connects to our survival instinct. And when I saw that more clearly for myself, it helped me to have more respect for the power of this primal biological desire for control. And it helped me to have more compassion for myself, for all of us living in these vulnerable human bodies in this uncertain, uncontrollable world. So compassion and self-compassion are powerful allies that can help us to develop the willingness and the tolerance to come closer to these afflictive states without falling into reactivity. And then as we have that capacity to stay present, we can see what causes them. Now just to acknowledge, there are myriad reasons why any of us might experience anxiety. There's our own individual personality and our temperament, our psychology. There's our family history. There's our cultural conditioning, our societal conditioning. 
And depending on circumstances, there are very real reasons why some people live in constant anxiety and fear because their survival is, in fact, being threatened. So just to be clear, that's not the kind of anxiety that I'm talking about here. I'm more wanting to focus on the types of anxiety that can come up here in the retreat context. So even though we're in a relatively safe environment here, we can still find ourselves at times caught up in worries and anticipations, expectations, predictions that don't have too much to do with our actual reality. And this kind of anxiety tends to be activated by social situations. And even though we're mostly in silence here, sometimes that very silence can seem to amplify those inner voices that at times can generate a seemingly endless stream of corrosive criticism. Sometimes this is referred to as the inner critic. And it's a syndrome that Ajahn Suchito refers to as the inner tyrant. He says, the inner tyrant wants a perfect self-image. You've probably met the inner tyrant. It's that nagging voice that demands that you achieve impossible standards of perfection. It never offers congratulations or appreciation. It exaggerates shortcomings. It indicts you with total responsibility of events over which you may have been only a part. And based on this, it delivers indifference or scolding. Sometimes the tyrant keeps urging you to do more or try harder. Advice that may have its place, but is inappropriate when it's applied to a divided heart. It just adds more weight to carry when carrying a self-image is already making our lives problematic. So by trying to make them form a satisfactory self-image, the inner tyrant actually impairs our actions. So I don't know if any of you recognized anything there. Certainly for me, it was something I struggled with for many years in the beginning of my practice. And back then, I believed that this kind of inner tyrant, inner critic was unique to me. It was unique to my family and social conditioning. And I believed that, by contrast, everybody else had it all together. Everybody else was fundamentally well-balanced and living blissfully free of even the slightest trace of neurosis. And it was really only when I started to be in the teaching role and I heard so many people describing similar struggles that I started to get a sense of just how common this pattern can be. And I hear so many variations of it coming up in our practice meetings. So people tell me things like, I just don't think I'm doing it right. I just don't get it. I'm just a useless meditator. I'll just never be good enough. And in fact, in one meeting a couple of years ago, I was listening to someone who was in that terrain. I can't remember who it was now. But they were just listing all the ways that they weren't doing it right. And at one point they said several times, literally, that I'll never be good enough. I'll just never be good enough. And as they said that over and over, at some point I realized actually they were right. They never would 
be good enough. So I just said, yeah, that's true. You'll never be good enough. And they looked at me kind of shocked. Because <laughs> they were probably secretly hoping that I'd try to convince them otherwise, try to convince them that they were doing okay. But what seemed to me at that point was that maybe I could have convinced them temporarily that they weren't completely hopeless. But after some time, that voice would come back again and the whole cycle would start again. Because what I realized in that moment is to that voice that says, never good enough, nothing will ever be good enough. That kind of syndrome is utterly insatiable. Even if you were the next Buddha, a fully awakened being, that inner tyrant would still find something wrong with you. So if you happen to notice that kind of drive in yourself, just to recognize, don't try to satisfy it. Try to see it as the delusion that it actually is, the distortion of perception. So one basis for this kind of anxiety is actually a phenomenon that the Buddha identified back in India 2,600 years ago. And this is the phenomena that he called mana, or comparing mind, which is sometimes also translated into English as conceit. So mana is a very common tendency to assess ourselves in relation to other people and to assess ourselves as being better than, or worse than, or equal to. And it's interesting to me that this word mana is related to the Pali word for intellect, mano or manas. And my understanding is that in Pali there are actually several different words that are used to describe the mind. And the Buddha used mano or manas to refer to the more cognitive aspect of consciousness. So it has, ter- it has connotations of measuring, and it's associated with reasoning and analy- analyzing. So we can think of mano or manas as referring to the intellect, as distinct from citta, which we usually translate as heart-mind. And citta includes our emotions and a more embodied, intuitive kind of wisdom. So coming back to mana as comparing mind, the symptoms include being constantly aware of what other people are doing and then aware of what we're doing in comparison. And again, there's often that inner monologue that's assessing how well or how badly we're doing relative to everyone else. Or sometimes relative to previous retreats or even future retreats. So one place that comparing mind often shows up quite intensely on retreat is in relation to the practice meetings. So I just wonder, have any of you ever experienced any anxiety sitting in the hall upstairs, sitting in Guru Alley and waiting to meet with your teacher? When I was thinking about this, I thought they should change it to Anxiety Alley rather than Guru Alley. But actually, if we think of anxiety as the guru that's being referred to there, every practice meeting we get an opportunity to explore if there's anxiety, if there's comparing mind. 
So again, in my own experience, often that anxiety would start to perk a little few hours before the scheduled time. And there'd start to be a little more planning and rehearsing and the desire to be seen as a good or hopefully even an outstanding meditator. (laughs) And then in mind, should I say this? Should I say that? Is that going to sound intelligent? Is that going to sound arrogant? Am I a bad meditator? Am I a good meditator? Why won't they just tell me the truth? (laughs) And if any of that sounds even slightly recognizable, see if you can just come out of the content of those thoughts. Oh, rehearsing is like this. Ah, this is anxiety. Ah, comparing mind is like this. And instead, see if you can meet all of that with self-compassion. Self-compassion, very helpful. And also compassion for the other meditators around you. Maybe they look completely calm and composed from the outside. But it's likely at least some of them are experiencing some kind of comparing mind too. It's just part of the experience of being human. And the more we can understand how universal it is, the less personally we can take it, the less we suffer. Then another test comes when we're actually in the practice meetings and we get an opportunity to try to stay steady with those deeper conditioned patterns. And I've spent a lot of time in Guru Ali as a student, too. And I know, you know, in my own experience, I might seem like I'm just innocently describing how I'm working with the anchor or describing how the awakening factors are coming up a little bit. But underneath that description, there's a seething mass of desire for approval and fear of rejection and waves of irritation and frustration and a sudden feeling of being six years old again. And it took me a long time to realize this is not something to be got rid of or denied. It's the practice. And even after I got used to that, afterwards I'd still find myself spending hours rehashing. Did the teacher really get it or were they just pretending to understand? And Do they think I'm okay or I'm a hopeless case? On and on and on. One of the aspects of this whole interaction that now that I'm in the teacher role is so poignant, even tragic, is that in these practice meetings, I think I can speak for my colleagues, my friends, every one of us teachers genuinely cares for your well-being and wants to support you as best we can. We're a team of seven people who are really dedicated to helping you experience more ease and happiness and freedom, which is pretty rare when you think about it. There's not many situations in ordinary life where that's the case, where you're face-to-face with people who deeply wish for your well-being. And yet in spite of those optimum circumstances, the distorted perceptions of comparing mind tend to see judgment when there isn't any. And that drives the intense anxiety, the fear of getting it wrong, trying to assess whether we're a good meditator or a bad meditator, wanting to be a success, worrying about being a failure, and on and on and on. 
And you may have noticed in all of that assessment, there's a lot of binary thinking there, a lot of black and white, good and bad, etc., etc. That's one reason why, as I said the other day, I like to emphasize, instead of thinking in terms of success and failure, to frame this whole retreat with an attitude of exploring and enjoying, or experimenting and enjoying. And that gives us, I think, I hope, a little more freedom from the dualistic assessment of good and bad. And it can help to soften the measuring, the comparing, the perfectionism. So as an antidote to this tendency, the drive towards perfectionism, insight into the truth of dukkha can be a very powerful ally. Really seeing that nothing is perfect, including we ourselves, can help to soften that relentless self-improvement project. That relentless self-improvement project that so many meditators get caught up in. And again, no judgment, no blame here. Most of us are subject to a lot of collective societal conditioning. On top of our own individual conditioning, there's just this imperative to try to make everything better or even perfect. We put so much energy in trying to control our external circumstances. And there's just that deeply unconscious assumption, if I just get this, if I just make this happen, then everything will be okay. But in spite of all of that effort, things change. Conditions are unstable. Sorry, are unstable. They're incapable of giving us lasting satisfaction. So accepting that reality, accepting the truth of dukkha, can help release some of the anxiety that tends to drive our perfectionism. In a similar way, the second, or actually the first universal characteristic, the truth of impermanence, of anicca, also can help when we're in the grip of anxiety. Just knowing that things change, just reminding ourselves, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Can help us not fight the grip of the anxiety We can practice with some of the equanimity phrases too. May I open to how it is right now? Because this is how it is right now. So rather than trying to control the state, we can just ride it out. However, the tendency with intensely afflictive states like anxiety is to to sort of to collapse into them and unconsciously to make them more solid and permanent than they actually are. And one of the ways we do this is again with our inner dialogue. And for me, in terms of my own practice, when I really started to pay closer attention to my own inner speech, I started to recognize just how distorting a lot of what I was telling myself was. One of the things I picked up was what psychologists call eternalizing statements. And these eternalizing statements 
include things like always or never. So I would hear myself, I'd hear people saying in practice meetings, I'm always anxious. I never experience any calm. I'm constantly worrying. And these terms like always and never and constantly, they're symptoms of absolutist thinking. And absolutist thinking is an unhealthy thinking style that's linked to anxiety and to depression. And in Buddhist terms, it's unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So it's worth being on the lookout for that kind of language. And if you find yourself making those kind of very definitive statements, you might try changing the language to something that's more accurate, more factually true. So for example, instead of, I'm always anxious, you might say, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Or instead of, I never experience any calm, you might just say, I haven't had much experience of tranquil mind states so far. Or rather than, I'm constantly worrying. I often notice that my mind gets caught up in worry. Do you hear the difference? When always and never and constant are in there, there's a solidification and the grip gets tighter rather than softer. Now, occasionally when I've suggested this to people, they try to convince me that actually I'm wrong and that their painful patterns have always been there, are constantly present now, and will probably always be into the future, forever and ever. And so we feel that identification. And one way we might challenge the misperception is to play with that uh, scale of 0 to 10 that they use in, in pain clinics. And so if we think of anxiety as an example, if 0 on that scale would be completely, totally calm, and 10 might be a full-blown panic attack, as you go about your day, you can just notice, where is the anxiety now? You might even just play with that. C, on a scale of 0 to 10, is it closer to 0? Is it below 5? Is it time spiking a little? And when you remember to do this throughout the day, often we see that anxiety is not nearly as solid and permanent as we think it is. It's constantly changing according to circumstances. The other benefit of doing this is there are times when the anxiety is much lower than we might normally notice for some people can be anxiety provoking I have a friend who had quite a long phase of chronic anxiety and he was uh, he went to the forest refuge and practiced for a couple of months and when he came out he told me that after having been hugely anxious for a long time on the second day he woke up and he had zero anxiety whatsoever and I said wow what was that like He said, absolutely terrifying. (laughs) So we can notice how we condition ourselves and how that grip can be so powerful. But this tool of registering on a scale of 0 to 10, it can train us to acknowledge 
those times when the anxiety is reduced or maybe even momentarily gone completely. And we can train, similar to how Brian was inviting us last night, to let in those times of ease, of calm, you could say beauty, to let ourselves abide there and dwell there and rest there so that those states become more familiar, become easier to find. So don't be afraid to let them in. Abiding in them is a profound form of kindness, of care, of self-compassion. And in fact, it supports all four of the Brahma-Vihara heart qualities to strengthen and to grow. So not only kindness and compassion, but also appreciative joy and equanimity. So I'd like to highlight how the four Brahma-Vihara can be such powerful antidotes to anxiety and specifically to comparing mind, mana. And interestingly, there's another term that's sometimes used to describe the four Brahma-Vihara. That term is apamana. Apamana is usually translated as boundless or immeasurable. So sometimes the four Brahma-Vihara are referred to as the four immeasurables because in their fullest development, they become completely unconditional, unlimited, boundless. And you may have noticed that the mana part of the word apamana is the same mana that comparing mind refers to. So apamana is inviting us to go beyond measuring and comparing. It's inviting us to quieten the intellect, the cognitive mind, that so often torments us with its incessant analysis. And as that mind gets quieter, we have the capacity to enter into the heavenly realms, the sublime abidings, the boundless states of the four Brahma-Vihara. So with practice, these apamana or boundless states, they help the heart-mind to release the habit of comparing, assessing, judging, measuring, so that we can dwell instead in the states of kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. And over time, these become more and more our default setting. And this whole process doesn't only bring psychological relief. It has the potential to lead all the way to the highest happiness, to the peace of Nibbana. And that's where all of this is heading. So may we all learn how to free ourselves from anxiety, from all afflictive states, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Let the words dissolve.
I'll be back here after the walking so we can chant the Karaniya Metta Sutta together. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.